0: The man stood on the edge of the platform, looking down at the turquoise waters 10 meters below. He had worked towards this his whole life. And he wasn't nervous, although what was about to happen, the next few moments, the next few seconds, would determine his future. He arched his heels Bouncing in the balls of his feet. His arms extended to the perfect point above his head. He briefly closed his eyes, filled his lungs. Opened his eyes, exhaled, and dove. And we want to know what happens next, right? There is something in us that doesn't like not knowing what happens next. There's something in us that doesn't like unresolved tension. Just uh, about a week ago, my wife Stephanie went in for what is now a very regular mammogram. And in the years past, uh, she, she would always experience a tension, an unresolved tension between the time she had her mammogram and the time the results came back. Every woman in this room... Um, has experienced that if you've been through a mammogram and you wait for those results to come back. But um, since three years ago when Stephanie went through breast cancer, I guess one bonus uh, of that is that she gets pretty much instant feedback on those mammograms. They expedite the results and give her the feedback. But because it had been three years since she had had her last mammogram, she had gotten thrown back into what is called the regular routine category. And so it was going to be a week Again, before she would hear what her results were, you know, a week is a really long time for someone who has been through two surgeries, chemotherapy and radiation to hear whether or not the insidious cancer cells were there or not, if they would returned or not. In fact, it was too long for her. And so she called and she said, can, can you please can, can I please not have to wait a week for this? And they were gracious. And so they said, we'll get back to you. And they called her back very quickly. Than with the results. See, there's something in us that doesn't like unresolved tension. Right? You're wondering, well, what were the results? Well, it's not about her. So, um, this is, this is about unresolved tension. She's fine. It's about unresolved tension. Okay? This is about unresolved tension. And the reality is in our lives, here's the thing, is that things are not always resolved. Right? We can't just take everything that happens and just put it in our filing cabinet and close it and lock it up in the basement. We can't just put a little bow on it and set it aside and say, oh, that's nice and done. We can't always just say, and they lived happily ever after and close the book. The reality is that there is unresolved tension in our lives. This happens. Especially today with the proximity of, of and the uh, the connectedness with which we have with one another, this, this is heightened now. mean you text somebody and they don't text you back right away, you start to twitch, okay? Because you're like, something's going wrong. You start to project a scenario. Maybe they're upset with you. Maybe something happened. We're so connected, we want to have instant feedback. We can't have anything unresolved in our lives and our relationships. And and here's the case I'd like to make this morning. The same is true with us when it comes to God. When it comes to our faith, we, don't, we, we want God to lay it out for us. We want God to make it very black and white. We want, to, we want God to respond to us very promptly and very specifically when we, when we come before Him. And when He doesn't, there's this unresolved tension that we don't appreciate. But, but here's the thing. When, when there's unresolved tension, what happens is, is that we lean in a little. We lean in and say, what's going to happen next? And perhaps God uses unresolved tension To cause us to to draw near, to lean in a little bit. As we continue on in our series this morning, weep with me the lost language of lament. This is what we're going to see. We're going to see the last chapter of the book of Lamentations leaves us in some unresolved tension. and The author does it, I think, on purpose. And so we're going to see this morning what we can draw from this and learn from this together. So grab a Bible with me and turn to Lamentations chapter 5. It's on page 586 in the Brown Bibles. It should be underneath your chairs or the chairs in front of you. we would strongly encourage you to, to follow along with me. you are going to read through the whole chapter together. So uh, if you're here this morning and you haven't been part of this series and you're trying to figure out, okay, what's Lamentations? I'll give you a little bit of context. So if we back up to the year 587 B.C., There was a Babylonian empire that was ruling the region of the Middle East, and there was a king named Nebuchadnezzar. And in 587, King Nebuchadnezzar brought the army of Babylon over to Jerusalem, and he decimated it. He burned Jerusalem to the ground and destroyed the temple. This is what many scholars believe is the most traumatic experience of the Hebrew people, the Old Testament, okay? I have a picture of of roughly what this looked like when Nebuchadnezzar marched on Jerusalem and burned the thing to the ground, okay? I mean, God had promised them a land. It was the promised land. They had come in. They had conquered it. They had uh, established a kingdom, established a temple. Solomon built this grand temple where God apparently dwelled. And now it was burning. People were being deported to Babylon. And those who were left were scrounging around in what was left of the city. Now, Lamentations uh, is, is a book made up of five poems from a poet who apparently lived in the midst of this. He experienced this. We don't exactly know who the poet is. It could be Jeremiah. It would make sense if it was him, but we don't know. It doesn't say, so we can't assume it was him. And what's interesting about these five chapters, and I mentioned this in week one when I kicked the series off, is that the first four chapters are called acrostic poems. Does anyone remember what acrostic means? you guys were not listening... It's A to Z. It's a poem that starts. Each line says A, then B, then C. It's Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dal. all the way A to Z, as if the poem is saying, this is the A to Z of my suffering. This is the A to Z of my lament. So that's four chapters of that. The fifth chapter, the one that we're going to look at today, is not a an necrostic. And you know what? You know why? I don't know why. I don't know. But what I wonder, if perhaps is why, is maybe the author was saying, I, I don't have, I don't have structure for this anymore. This is just such a mess. I can't even try to button this up in a structure. It's just a giant mess. But let's see what the poet says here in chapter 5. Let me pray and then let's read this. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. As hard as some of these words are to read, uh, they are relevant to us. Because even just as, Father, as Dave just prayed this morning, some of the things that they've experienced over in Hartford this last month have caused them to want to lament. Um. Father, this is very relevant for us. I pray that you would show us something new, each of us, that you'd speak to us directly and clearly this morning through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read chapter 5. Remember, O Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens. Okay, that's, that's not aliens like you're thinking. That's foreigners. Our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans and fatherless. Our mothers like widows. We must buy the water we drink. Our wood can be had only at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are wearied and find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more. We bear their punishment. Slaves rule over us. There's none to free us from their hands. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skins as hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. Women have been ravished in Zion. and virgins in the town of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gate. Young men have stopped their music. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim from Mount Zion, which lies desolate with jackals prowling over it. You, you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure, This is God's word. And that's the end of the book. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Do you see the tension? It's it's like it's unresolved. It's like there's a trail off. I just want you to think about this. Think about what if if you look at verses 21 and 22 again. What if we would have just what if the author would have just swapped them? This is what it would have looked like. This next slide. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Unless you've utterly rejected us and are so angry with us beyond measure, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return, renew our days as of old. Do you see the difference? Let's see how this could have could have ended differently. But the author, for some reason, was very intentional. This is a poem, and is writing and leaves us hanging with the trail off. Unless you've rejected us utterly and are angry with us beyond measure, unresolved tension. We're left with unresolved tension. Why? Because sometimes there's unresolved tension. That's why. But let's back up and see this case that's being made here. Um, In chapter 5, verse 1, the poem begins, the the poet cries out to God in a prayer. Remember, O Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. If you remember throughout this whole series, if you've been tracking with us, you'll see this idea of, hey, see us. Look at us. Look at what's going on. There's a lot of that throughout Lamentations. Because you know what happens? When, when we are going through loss or suffering or even disgrace, we wonder whether people can see us. Do, do you, does anyone get it? Does anyone understand what we're experiencing? Does anyone care? You know, I think those of you in the room who have lost a loved one, which is probably all of us at some point, What I find pastorally is that there's a flurry of support and activity and care that goes up to a funeral, for example, and then shortly after the funeral. But then what happens? People go on with life, and you who have lost that loved one don't go right back to normal life. And so you begin to wonder, does anyone else get it? Does anyone else care? And in that moment, you feel as though you would say, can can, can someone look and see? Here the poet cries out, Begging God not to forget what's happened, to look and see. But make no mistake, God has seen everything. God's seen everything. In fact, for over 700 years, he's been watching this thing play out. He's been seeing everything that's happened. And he's seen 700 years of personal, communal, and national sin. When I kicked the series off, I talked about there's really three core reasons that we lament. The first reason that we lament is our own sins. Okay? This is things, choices that we make. Our own insidious selfishness, incessant selfishness, our sin causes things to happen in our lives that that cause us to lament. At least we should be lamenting. Last week, if you were here, you are Bill Share. Bill shared at a very vulnerable level some of the effects of the sins of his own choices and the impact that that has had in his life and the lives of others. And what, one of the things that Bill said was he says we can't always... Uh, we can choose our sins, but we can't always choose the consequences of those sins. Okay? So we can choose our sins, we can't always choose the consequences of those sins. I'll give you an example of that. This uh, past week, um, a child who I know very well who will remain nameless had an altercation on the school bus. Okay? And... Um, that the reason this happened is because that child is a sinner like you and me okay but what happened was um there was an altercation with another child and the child's parents happened to be neighbors the, the family's neighbors of ours and so before i was even able to come home the parents and uh, the child the other child came to our house okay to talk to the child who remains nameless and my wife And it was great because it was like, hey, they just wanted to make sure because they knew their child wasn't probably innocent in the altercation as well, which they were not. And and so there was there was discussion. There was a kind of a reconciliation, perhaps even a future play date on the calendar to some extent. So that was all taken care of. But but Stephanie and I sat down and we said, is this really is there really enough consequences here or perhaps there should be a different consequence? Well, this child who remains nameless was concerned that perhaps Mr. Kasich was going to find out what happened. Mr. Kasich is the principal. And so I said, to, I said to this child, who I know, I said, Mr. Kasich is going to hear about this because you're going to tell him tomorrow morning. No! 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 Instant tears. Okay, But the next day, that child went into Mr. Kasich's office. We had role-played that and process through that see, see that child could choose their sins could not always choose their consequences so we lament because of our own sins secondly we lament because of the sins of others okay this is just it flipped around right so this is when other people hurt us wound us impact us, and there's damage and destruction. And then thirdly, we lament because of the brokenness of this world. What that means is that even if you uh, get through the the struggle and suffering of cancer, for example, at some point, in some way, shape, or form, you know, you're going to probably pass away. You will. Okay? Even if you're 92 years old, okay, and lived a full life to some extent. It's the brokenness of the fallenness of this world that there is still death. There's still Accidents there's still natural disasters, things like this. And all three of these are destructive. All three of these things cause us to lament. Here in chapter 5, the poet laments what he sees are the effects of sin at three different levels, a personal level, a communal level, and a national level. Okay? And then what happens is there is a disgrace and a consequence that happens that God allows to happen that's ironic at each level, at a personal level, at a communal level, and a national level. So let's start with a personal level. Verse one. Oh, Lord, look and see our disgrace. In verse two, it says the people have lost their inheritance, which is a big deal personally, because in the, the 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 Israelite culture. The history of the people, they were given land, and each family was given land. Each family was individually given land. Professor Adele Berlin notes, in ancient Israel, great pains were taken to ensure that land was not alienated from its original owner, family, or tribe. So what happened was, every 50 years, something called the Year of Jubilee. So, so if, if Brian and I were having an issue, and I owed him something, and eventually Brian took my land, because I just, I was indebted to him, 50, it, whatever the year jubilee was, I get the land back. You're like, whoa, that's like
1: socialism or something.
0: But that, that, that like, this is how it was because God was a God who didn't want his people to be forever indebted. He didn't want to have people who were consistently oppressed. And God was a God of second chances. And so we had the year of jubilee. So the irony is people are losing their land. And not only are they losing it to the land to their brothers who could get back to them, they're losing it to foreigners who were never supposed to have it in the first place. And would they ever get it back was the question. There's an irony at the personal loss level here in chapter 5. And not only that, the individuals, it says, scrounging around to find water and wood. This was supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey, and they can't even find water and wood. That's at a personal level. Communal level. Secondly, in verse 3, we find that people have become orphans and widows. In verse 11, the women, young and old, have been ravished across the countryside Think of that. They couldn't protect themselves. Their husbands and fathers couldn't protect them either. In verse 12, the leaders are somehow held up in public shame and hung up by their hands, whatever that was. Their elders communally are being disrespected and disgraced. And in verse 13, it says, young men and boys were reduced to doing basically the work of animals. I'm not sure if it's because they ate all the animals. There were no animals left to do the work. I don't know. But they're, doing, they're reduced to doing the work of animals This is a bad deal communally. And the irony here is captured by Dr. Christopher Wright in this next slide. Among the many ways in which Israel had ignored the covenant laws of God was their chronic neglect of precisely those categories of people whom God commanded them to care for. For example, it's not windows, it's supposed to be widows. Sorry, that's my typo. For example, widows, orphans, and foreigners, now having failed to care for the oppressed, they have joined the ranks of the oppressed themselves. I think we just need to do a quick time out here and say, hey, how are we doing? How are we doing on taking care of the widows, orphans, and foreigners? Because apparently the irony here in God's consequence of communal sin and selfishness is if we do not care for the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners, we become widows, orphans, and foreigners. How are we doing, family? Family. So there's consequences at a personal level. There's consequences at a communal level. And there's consequences now at a national level in this text as well. In verse 8, we see that it says slaves ruled over the country. And the irony in that is that they were once slaves. They were free, brought out, and, and ruled over the land. And now they're they're being ruled over, and not only just ruled over, but ruled over by slaves, the puppet Babylonian authorities. And then in verse 18, it says Mount Zion, the city, the temple, the, the, the people, the, the center of the the national life and worship is destroyed. These are the consequences of sin at all these levels. Now, to be clear, just just want to make sure you're clear, the the poet here is not blaming God for this. The poet is not blaming God. He's saying, "God, God, look, look. Now, who the poet does try to blame is his dad. He throws his dad and everyone else's dad on the bus. Okay? Verse 7. He says, Our fathers sinned in our own no world. We bear their punishment. You know what? They're easy targets because they're dead. But he's like, See what they did? It's all their fault, and we're bearing their punishment. Some of that's true, but it's not the only sin that's going on. He owns his own sin in verse 16. In his generation's sin, he says, Woe to us, for we have sinned. Okay? So God's not being blamed, per se, but the poet knows that God has sovereignty and He is in control over all circumstances. And so he knows God's allowing these devastating consequences to play out at an individual level, at a communal level, at a national level. And then because of this, in verse 17, he says, because of all that, our hearts are faint and our eyes grow dim. In other words, there's no hope and no vision. Somewhere in your life you are probably experiencing lament. Perhaps it's the lament of the loss of a loved one, or the loss of a job, or the loss of an opportunity. Perhaps it's the loss of mobility as you age. Perhaps it's the loss of a relationship because of conflict, a marriage through divorce. Perhaps it is... The loss of your reputation somewhere there's a good chance you're lamenting a loss and, and if that's the case in that there's a chance that you also your heart grows faint your eyes grow dim it's hard to see god in the midst of that if that's you then you are tracking with chapter 5 of lamentations you're tracking with the author you're tracking with the unresolved tension. But here, if we're really going to track with the poet in, in chapter 5, we can't just track when we think that we're the victim of someone else's sin. Okay? We can't just track that way. Because you know what else? There's a good chance that somewhere in your life, that you're lamenting because of your own sins as well. At least we should be. See, I think one of the reasons we may say our eyes grow faint or our eyes grow dim and we can't see the future or see hope in the future is because we're like, oh, it's all oppressing us and everything. But another way I think our eyes grow dim is that we actually grow callous to seeing our own sin. Our eyes grow dim because of our apathy or our self-righteousness or both. But in either case, if our eyes grow dim, here's what we have to do. We have to do what the poet does here, and that is to to remember who God is and cry out to him. We have to remember who God is and cry out to him. That's the, I think, the application that we can draw from this text. We have to remember who God is in the midst of that lament, whether it's because of our own sin or someone else's sin, and we have to cry out to him. If we're ever going to see these things redeemed, we have to bring them before him. And the poet seems to do that. He comes back in verse uh, 19. He says, You, O Lord, reign forever. Remember, the temple is trashed and destroyed. You, but he still says, You, O Lord, reign forever. In other words, just because the temple is destroyed doesn't mean that God is destroyed. Just because the temple is gone doesn't mean God is gone. Just because God has forsaken His people in this time doesn't mean that He will forever forsake them. And so he cries out for restoration because I believe the poet believes that there is still redemption possible in the midst of this situation. That ultimately things will not stay unresolved, but they will be redeemed. They will be redeemed. Now, a month ago, when we kicked the series off, I, I brought a sister of Christ up front who had just recently experienced some trauma as a mom. And we had her share... I think what broke probably all of our hearts who were here to hear it, right? Okay? But then when she and I were processing through this, what we wanted to do is we literally were going to leave it there for a month. We didn't resolve that. We didn't say, oh, here's the rest of the story because we wanted to sit in that time of lament for a month. Okay? But we, there is more to the story. There is. And God can redeem situations like this. And so I want to invite her back up to have her share some of the rest of the story. Can we give her a warm family welcome? (laughs) So, sister, um, I'm not using your name because we're online recorded, but um, for those of us here this morning who maybe weren't here a month ago when we shared together, could you catch us up to speed maybe... Uh, give us an update of where we were a month ago.
1: Yes. So um, last time I had shared that I found um, my identity in, in being a mom. And as a mom protecting my child, um, it's, it's an instinct. I'm sure it is for all moms here. So um, last October, though, one of my um, young daughters was sexually assaulted. And it was by a stranger in a public place. Um, I've never felt so physically sad. Um, I couldn't think. Uh, head was cloudy and chest was heavy. I just, I ached all over. Um, her safety and, and her purity being violated, it, it cut, cut me deep into uh, my self-worth as her mother. And um, I felt like a failure. Uh, I was trapped in guilt and in depression. Um, what was taken from my daughter, uh, no amount of money or time can return And uh, there's no scars or injury on her, but his act, it penetrated her, Um, all of her being, her trust, her security, her future intimacy. And and I don't think she fully understands what happened, but uh, I get anxious over her future. Mm -hmm.
0: I think both now and a month ago, we, we can almost feel our hearts, right? Like we hear that, and there's part of our hearts that break because that's not how it's supposed to be, Right. So, but those, those who have known about some of this and have been kind of aware of what's going on and trying to walk a little bit with you uh, through this have known that it doesn't necessarily get tied up in a bow and put away, but there is some uh, redemption that, that you, in the midst of this, never, your eyes never grew so dim that you couldn't see that God could redeem some of this trauma and tragedy, right? Right?
1: Yeah, um, we we do serve an awesome God, and he has drawn me closer to him through um, every step of it. Um, I couldn't ask for anything more. The next Sunday, um, I was here at Kettlebrook with you guys, and um, he just powerfully healed me from that depression. We were singing the song, um, This is Amazing Grace. The first line says, Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? And that's where I would found myself, was in darkness and hurt. By sin and I would have doubted it before I experienced it but his power in that moment just to pull me um, out of the depression was, was an amazing um, experience and to, to know that he cared and was, was close in that time yeah. um, the weeks that followed he continued to, to guide me I've never felt um, the prompting and the presence of the Holy Spirit um, as I have during that time um, should know the the perpetrator was also uh, a juvenile. And um, I don't think I need to tell you how I felt about his parents uh, at first. Uh, you're probably all right there too. Um, but God convicted me um, that I didn't know the whole story and that it wasn't mine to judge. And w- one night I prayed uh, that God would show me how much he loved the young man's mom, and that he would help me to love her the same. and And that was another powerful moment that he and a prayer that he's answered. Um, my, my feelings towards her, it changed from disgust to compassion and then into love. And, um, that was just one of many prayers that he's answered. Um, there, there's been many, but even at that point, there was one night I found myself just crying again over paperwork that I had to do for court and things. And, um, I thought I'd move past that point. Um, but I, I was blaming God. Um, I'd seen him move, I'd seen him answer prayers, and then it just stopped and, um, it made me angry that he had left. Um, he reminded me that he hadn't, that I had, had not obeyed, and, um, and I was the one who'd walked away. He'd grown a love for me, um, for this other mom, and I'd just done nothing with it. Um, so I started to look for ways to encourage her. Uh, I wasn't, wasn't sure what was legal. We were in the middle of a criminal court case. I didn't know what was wise to say or to do. Um, I didn't know what she thought of me or if anything I could say would would be encouraging Uh, some of the people I talked to about it they said that I should wait should talk later um, after the court case would be a good time to wait for um, or wait for her to speak first Um, but I'd heard clearly from God that I could not wait and uh, he laid a prayer for her on my heart I knew that's what I should share it was only two sentences that I emailed it to her I said, I pray for you every day. May God wrap you in His love and peace today.
0: Wow, wow! So you and you reached out then and and pray and you communicated this that you were praying this to the mother of the one who did this to your daughter. Yes, you did that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah,
1: God said I had to. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's, that, seems, that seems crazy, right?
1: Yeah, he's, he asks for crazy things. <laughs>
0: so, um, so how did that go?
1: Um, it, it went great. She, her response, she did respond. It was very um, heartfelt and compassionate, um, more than I expected. Um, she had been praying for us too. And a paraphrase of her prayer, she'd been praying that we would have peace, healing, and protection, as well as know God's presence and guidance through our pain. And much of what I'm sharing for you with you today is actually an answer to that prayer she had for us. Um, I thought I would leave her alone after that. Uh, (laughs) But God prompted me to reach out to her again. And um, that time her response, it was more painful to read, and her words, again, were kind, but it was going back to the hurt. Um, I felt like I had moved past it, but um, opening that door back up um, was painful just to go back to the situation and the hurt that was there. Um, but even in that moment, um, God revealed to me that, that he was showing me a window, um, of how he feels towards us. Um, I asked him to show me how he loved her and he was doing that in a powerful way. And, um, he'd said that that's how he loves me too. Um, and that even though he knows I will hurt him again, that he loves, he loves each of us the same. And it wasn't just once at the cross that my sin was painful for him. Um, but it's, it's every day and every time and he stays there and it's a reckless love and that, and that was just a powerful experience just in that moment for him to um, show that to me uh, in such a real way uh, these initial emails actually led to us meeting and we've spent time in prayer together and talking um, there was a peace um, from God's presence when we were together um, we talked for hours the first time and we both saw a common enemy in the situation we saw that it was sin not one another. Mm-hmm. And um, we've continued to talk over the past few months. Uh, I've heard much more of his story. Uh, when she, she adopted him through foster care, and he had been uh, a victim of horrific um, abuse, mm-hmm. a witness as well. So not an excuse for him, but uh, a reason that he also needs healing and prayer through this. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's been... Our relationship's been led by the Holy Spirit, and it's been a blessing, and it's been healing for both oh. of us.
0: Oh, amen. One, one of the things that that when we were talking to you is that really was um, another testimony to who God is in, in your life, sister, was what you said to him um, in court. Can you share with us uh, what you shared?
1: Yeah, so this was um, said during a statement that I gave uh, to the judge, and I said to addressing him, I said, I trust... That God can com- bring complete healing to him. I pray that he's not defined by the titles felon or sex offender. I want him to know that he's a child of God, created in His image, loved, and worthy of love. And I pray that God reveals Himself to him as He has through me, has to me through this.
0: How can you say that response? How can you give that response?
1: because oh, it's true. Um, that um, because God is sovereign and He's faithful, and He's um, used this tragedy to draw me deeper to Him, and um, I've seen His power and His presence, and uh, He is our our soul comforter. And in spite of what happened, um, you read in verse 19, God still reigns forever, and that His throne endures from generation to generation, mm-hmm. and. Um, God has just comforted me that my daughter is that next generation. And, and as he's been faithful to me, I trust that he will be faithful to her as well and that he will use this and her future um, to draw her closer to him in some way. And um, he, the, the, the boy, the perpetrator, he's the next generation. And, and I pray that God will draw him closer and that despite the brokenness in the world that God's throne endures. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Can we pray? Can we pray?
0: Lord, um, in the midst of the lament, you do see. Look and see, and you do. And our sister shared some words here that um, are profound for us. We can connect in a variety of ways. And so, Father, we do ask these words. We pray that the next generation would be impacted by you in such a way when radical, reckless love is demonstrated. It's been demonstrated most certainly and clearly by your son Jesus to us. And Father, if if those of us who claim to be his followers, if we really believe that he has loved us that recklessly, may we love as well this recklessly. Even, Even those who would seem so hard to love. Impossible, almost. So that it would be a supernatural kind of love that would go forth, that would allow us to understand who you are what you've done, so we'd understand who we are then and what we are to do in light of that. Your throne endures from generation to generation. May it be so, Father. May we be a part of that as we seek to humbly submit ourselves to you. Thank you for our sister for her husband, for their family, and the ways that they are willing to, to to be obedient to you in the midst of this. She shared, Father, that she has heard, by your, heard from your Spirit in ways she never has before in the midst of this suffering. May those in this room who are also suffering experience the same thing for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.